Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello. So it's been 123 days now of horror. Horror, which we've seen disproportionately, I have to say, on social media. Um, much of the reality, I have to say, has not been as visible as it should be in much of the mainstream media. One of the things that's often been lacking, and I say this as someone working in the British media now for 13 years, is maybe expertise, context, understanding of the issue in a less than superficial fashion, uh, which is why I'm very delighted today to be joined by the brilliant Chris Doyle, who for me has helped keep me sane uh, for the last 123 days. And I think that's been the case for lots of people who follow Chris on social media. He's the director of the Council for Arab-British Understanding and obviously a commentator on this issue. Um, I mean, it's striking because of the, if we're honest, the huge role of Britain historically in the horrifying mess we're currently looking at the lack of expertise outside of, for example, the British Palestinian community, uh, it's it's rare. And that's why Chris is so important because he's he knows this inside out. He goes there all the time. And one of the things we've been talking about is the politicians he takes over uh, to Palestine and why politicians refuse to take a stand um, in defence of the Palestinians. Chris, it's great to speak to you. How are you doing? Great to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. Big honour, big honour, honestly. Let's just start. I mean, in terms of, I guess, just, you know, since the 7th of October, this has become, you know, it, obviously it has dominated news headlines. I don't think it's been, we'll talk about the framing perhaps of it. But this is something obviously you've been passionate about for a very, very long time. But it hasn't had the coverage, has it? Or the prominence that it deserves. The Palestinian people, despite, as I said, the role of Britain in terms of what the fate of the Palestinians, I mean, ju just maybe talk in terms of your sense mm. of throughout your career, just how difficult maybe it is in terms of getting general interest in the, the fates of the Palestinian people. Well, I think actually I've been dealing with this since the early 1990s and before that at, at, at university. I'd actually say there has been a lot of interest in Israel-Palestine. I think if you compare it with other conflicts, it's absolutely true. Yemenis would crave to even have a very small fraction of the attention. I don't think it's quantity, it's quality. I'd have loved to have had hundreds of the quantity of attention and media coverage and political debate about it if we could actually get people to adhere to the same basic norms of international law and conflict resolution that are sometimes applied to other conflicts. What we tend to see is the recycling of the same old discredited arguments about Israel-Palestine. I mean, if you go back in parliamentary debates, you will see pretty much the same sorts of things have been said over the years, going back years, arguably even decades, that there is slogans and talking points 
often where the MPs don't really understand what they mean. I mean, there were times people would say the Middle East peace process when there hadn't been, there hasn't been any talks between Israel and the Palestinians for now ages, since 2014 at, at least. So I'd, I'd say it's more about the quality uh, of attention that, that really matters. And, you know, there are a lot of uh, people from a more pro-Israeli perspective who say, oh, you know, nobody pays any attention to, to say, Syria or uh, Myanmar or any of these other egregious atrocities we've seen. But actually, one of the things that I think that gets people is that on Syria, the British government largely took the right approach, that it actually did call out the Syrian regime for the atrocities, uh, the use of chemical weapons, the brutalities it carried out, it imposed sanctioned sanctions. So it applied the sort of actions that many people might expect in such circumstances. But when it comes to Israel-Palestine, I think that what really troubles those of us who've been there, that have seen it over such a long period of time, is the protracted nature of these human rights violations, violations of international law, and nothing is done. In fact, if anything, we're still complicit with their violation. Now look at the growth in settlement, uh, uh, settlements in, in, the, in the West Bank. I mean, if you go back to the time of Oslo, um, we've seen almost a trebling of the number of settlers, that is Israeli civilians who've been transferred into occupied territory. It's a grave breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention. We, we issue press releases. We express concern, grave concern. Quite frankly, I think Israeli ministers laugh and shred them. They pay no attention to them at all. They expect the Europeans to issue uh, this. Every now and again, you may actually get the use of the C word. Condemn might make it its way into a, into a press release for varying reasons. But we never take the actions that are necessary to stop, to persuade Israel to halt uh, that settlement building. Uh, we don't do that in terms of home demolitions or forcible transfers or collective punishment. Uh, the transfer of Palestinians into Israel, into, into jails, another breach. All of these things, one could go on, the taking of water, that all of this has decimated Palestinian lives day in, day out. It's a grinding process, military occupation. It may not be every day that there are dramatic scenes that are worthy of TV coverage, but the day-to-day -day life of a Palestinian in the West Bank is never calm. It's never normal. You're always wondering if your child is going to make it back from school safely, if you can get your wife to a hospital. These are the worries that are just normal for Palestinians. They don't really know what normal normality is as we would understand it. And then if you go to Gaza, it's even worse because you know, imagine you're an 18 year old and you know, uh, right now, this is your sixth major Israeli bombardment on Gaza since 2006. This is a really sophisticated uh, Israeli army with weapons, F-16s bombing you. You have no protection, you don't have any bunkers. It's terrifying. You've grown up with this. You wouldn't have left the Gaza Strip. Most of them haven't left. They would never have seen a mountain. They've never seen a river. They've never seen so many of the things that, you know, our, uh, our kids here would just take for granted. Uh, I've been in situations with 
Palestinian refugees where they will draw not what we would hope our children would be drawing, you know, flowers or, or whatever. They draw bombs. They draw tanks. That's their, their life. They worry about their father being imprisoned, having his work permit taken away from them. And then, you know, you get all this debate that it's textbooks that somehow have transformed these children into violent uh, people attacking Israelis. It's the, it's the context of occupation has always been the biggest inciter of, of Palestinians taking action. There's no question about it. I'm glad you just took on what is, I think, one of the most just outrageous uh, bad faith arguments, which is why why are you all talking about this rather than X, Y, or Z? Uh, where, why are you marching against Assad or Putin? And, and that just critical point you made, which is we are directly involved in what's happening because we arm and support what Israel is doing. Uh, whereas in the case of Putin, clearly what Britain has what put sanctions is arming the other side um, and has obviously repeatedly condemned uh, what she's doing as a consensus within the media ecosystem. This is different because actually, let alone the media, which is largely sympathetic to um, Israel, um, you have uh, the British government is directly arming, aiding and abetting. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? We are not also because of our history in terms of Britain, but in the here and now, even before this horror, we were complicit in everything happening. But also, you know, you're going to get more people out on marches. This is brought up. How come there are huge marches for Palestinians, although they are horrendously described as pro-Hamas marches, which I think is absolutely yeah. disgraceful. People do not go on those, those marches for the most part, 99.9% .9 of them, because they are pro-Hamas. No, they know the context of what has been happening to them. You know, you don't go on a march on the whole if your government is largely doing what you broadly think is right. So the fact yeah. that we are challenging Putin and that there aren't marches is, is probably more a reflection that British public opinion saying, yeah, broadly, you're right to challenge him. He should, Russia should not be invading Ukraine. Yeah. You get marches when there is a tension between the public yeah. and yeah. the government. And there is on this issue. And it's massive. And we see that in opinion polls. We did an opinion poll in January. Um, uh, Carbu with, with MAP showed that 71% of the British population uh, uh, believed in an immediate ceasefire. And that's been reflected before. There was a poll in, in October. It was about 76%. Um, the really massive gap between the political leadership and public opinion is, is really enormous. And I think dangerous and they don't get it i think that they are only catching up particularly labor with the damage it's doing to their reputations uh, the leadership this is what i'm going to talk to you about politicians in particular because what you've been doing over the years is taking politicians uh to occupy palestine and um, from different political parties now, I, I always find this, you know, sometimes I think, why why are politicians failing to stand up for the Palestinian people? Why won't they condemn overt war crimes or condemn Israel uh, when it clearly violates international law egregiously? And it, sometimes, it, you know, people lapse into quite conspiratorial thinking. But one I worked in Parliament for about four years. And um, let's just say my, if I had illusions about many members of Parliament, they were quite quickly shattered 
just in terms of competence um, uh, and ability to grasp an issue and have depth, which is why often they went along with a consensus and, and just, you know, because that's easy mode. And if you want to go against the consensus, then you, you have to do a lot of homework often and you have to feel confident in what you're saying. I'm just wondering, though, what's your general sense, having taken so many MPs, members of parliament from different political parties, why is there so few MPs who will actually take a stand? And what, what are the kind of general things you've, you've discovered over the years? Well, I think most politicians here know this is a really sensitive issue. It arouses passions uh, that there are so many people invested in it with strong viewpoints. So they know if they're going to say anything, that they are likely to get a lot of pushback, whatever they say, or towards one side or another. And until they've gone out there, they don't actually have the confidence really to come out and say it like it is. So they look at it and they're confused. They're told it's a complex conflict very complex, all sorts of things. Now that is actually as much as anything a ruse to get people to be quiet. You tell them it's complex in order to actually stop the debate. And you're right to say that, you know, MPs, and it's got worse over the years, are not specialists, they have to be generalists. The whole system encourages that. It's They have to speak on numerous issues per day. They're told by the whips to say this and they will go along with the whips. And only on occasions do they have the confidence to sort of say, hold it one second on this issue, I'm gonna say something different and, and to challenge it. They are meant to be loyalists to the party line. And until we change our system, we're unlikely to, to get really a much of a change of a debate on all of this. So we take MPs out there and, and Lords in order that we can try to give them a much deeper grasp of what's going on. So take the issue of a settlement. I think if you said the word settlement to people, that sounds pretty anodyne and pretty normal. It's a settlement. Uh, it could even have a positive connotation. You don't get the idea that here is this community that's been inserted into occupied territory, typically built on a hill on Palestinian land that dominates the landscape, that takes water allocations away from Palestinians. So settlers, the figures vary, but roughly get six times more water per head than their Palestinian neighbours. In fact, many Palestinian villages don't even have pipe water. And the way in which then Israeli security comes in, so the fact that the presence of the settlers means that Palestinians can't often farm their lands, pick their olives close to that settlement, and the way in which it then has subsequent knock-on effects. So you take politicians out there and really very quickly nowadays the occupation has changed you see the scales falling from their eyes and they're going what's going on one mp said to me after only a few hours in the west bank where's this second state going to be i've been told to talk about a two-state solution but i can't see where they're going to have a palestinian state and of course many palestinians are asking this question you know the second state we've got 700 and 50,000 Israeli settlers here and, you know, well over 250 Israeli settlements and they're expanding. How, how, do you, how do you do this? How do you actually achieve that? So there's enormous uh, disillusionment with this idea, uh, challenging it and saying, you, the international community, you want this, but you do nothing to achieve this solution. And you take them there and I think they start learning and you, you get some questions, you know, that illustrate how little they do know.
Um, to give you perhaps one of the most egregious examples, I remember being in, in Bethlehem. I was in Manger Square and uh, an MP leans over to me and says, Chris, just remind me, what happened in Bethlehem? And I sort of did a double take and I'm going, did he just ask this? And, and I said, you, you mean the, the birth of Jesus Christ? Ah, oh, yeah, thanks. And it, it's... It's, it, it is the I know they run the country and and then you have others who thought that Gaza was connected to, to the West Bank and hadn't realized it would be separated. You find all of these, um, you find people who've never heard of Hebron, this major city of antiquity. I mean, it's where Abraham was, was buried and so forth. And you go there and, it, you know, this is probably the tensest city in the West Bank. And it, 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 there's apartheid in the city. I mean, you know, in a sense, this is a Jewish area. This is a Palestinian area. Different rules, different practices. You know, it's extreme. And certain roads are, as the Israeli forces describe them, sterilized. That's how they're... Sterilized means devoid of Palestinians. I mean, you cannot get more dehumanizing than that. And yeah, so... I think it does have a lasting impact upon them. You hope that that will last for years. It's not about them coming back in the following two weeks and what they do. It's what they do over the course of their parliamentary political careers, what they might say in the media, what they might say to their colleagues. Some can talk about it publicly. They'd be backbenchers so they can talk in the debates. Some people might be in particular positions that mean that they will only do it in, in private but that's that's part of the political system if you're shadow minister and it's not your portfolio well you could talk to your colleagues you can urge other people to go and see and get a feel for it and you know on the whole i think that, that people do in contrast the friends of israel groups also take a lot of delegations and they include as part of it going to the west bank but they go to ramallah and they go to this neighborhood this uh, new planned city called Rewebi, which was funded with Qatari money. Now, this is like some, you know, alternative universe to most Palestinians. Is I it mean, a Potemkin village? It's, I mean, 99% it, it, of Palestinians couldn't afford to go there. It's completely unrepresentative of their way of life at all. You've got some of the rich in Ramallah have second houses there. But even in building uh, at Rewebi, they had problems with the Israeli authorities and settlers about access, about water, uh, settler violence. They didn't want it there. Even Ramallah itself is a bit of a bubble because you get all the aid money goes into, into Ramallah. You get all the major international agencies, UN agencies. So the economy in Ramallah is much more vibrant than, say, in uh, Nablus or Tulkarim, Kalkilia, other Palestinian cities where there's a higher degree of poverty and you get much more of an impact of the occupation. So they don't actually get a, a sense of uh, life. But actually, one of the things that I think members of parliament have been most shocked at uh, has been the military courts, the Israeli military courts. I don't know if you've ever been in, in, in there, but I remember going there myself the first time, and it is truly jaw-dropping. One MP described it quite right, said, Chris, this is a processing centre. Now, the main Israeli military court of offer has a 99.74% conviction rate. I mean, 
Charles Assad would be really proud of that sort of level of um, judicial uh, uh, success. And you go into these porter cabins, and they're, they're, I remember there was a 14-year-old boy, and they wear these brown jumpsuits, which is reminiscent really of Guantanamo. They have leg irons, so they're in the middle of an Israeli military camp, as if they could get out or be a threat anyhow. And the boy was banging his head on uh, uh, this on the wooden uh, <coughs> bar in front of him, and nobody did anything, and he was clearly traumatized. And it, it, it was just heartbreaking. And what he was really waiting for was his two family members weren't in the courtroom at that stage. And that's what it was for them. You know, you go into the court, you have no faith in this judicial system because you're told to plead guilty because otherwise you'll be in jail for longer. So just plead guilty. And they weren't there. When, when they arrived, he stopped and he started talking to them. The Israeli soldier tries to say enough, but that's all he's interested in. And it's part of a, an appalling process that starts with you know, probably stone throwing where young kids are throwing stones against Israeli soldiers or settlers. They get arrested in the middle of the night, taken away without any parents. They get interrogated without an appropriate adult with them. All of this, I can go into a lot of detail about it, but it's a completely dehumanizing process. But it integral to how you manage to keep an occupying, occupation going, over 3 million people in the West Bank who don't want you to be there, with a pretty low military footprint, but you put them through these military court systems, you intimidate them, and they don't re-offend. And if you didn't do that, there would be more stone throwing, etc. But it has a massive impact on, on the kids who the parents report a lot of trauma, right. psychological issues, bedwetting, lack of concentration, um so but yeah we've had actually quite a lot of debates in parliament as a result of those delegations to raise this issue um and you know people sometimes talk about israel's independent judiciary i mean it, the one that actually netanyahu has been busily trying to to ditch and get rid of but in terms of the military courts it's not there i mean one of the one time it was a settler judge who was you know, uh, presiding. So these kids are probably throwing stones near a settlement. I mean, he wasn't going to be sympathetic to them at all. So, I, you know... I, I interviewed um, the very courageous Israeli journalist Gideon Levy, and he, I mean, he just described these as hostages. He said they... Because, you know, you, you had so many Palestinians, including young people, taken without charge... Not, they're not convicted of anything in a military court system. Um, Save the Children also did a really gruesome report about the experience of child detainees, which suggested both physical and sexual abuse of those children. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of reports and really a lot of interest, including, by the way, I should credit the British government here. The Foreign Office commissioned a report. And strangely enough, there was going to be a follow-up report conducted by lawyers that would have included... Uh, none other than Keir Starmer. He was due to go out. And then the Israelis withdrew cooperation and said, we're not going to cooperate with this delegation of lawyers sponsored by the Foreign Office. Oh. So the Foreign Office just said, OK, they don't go. We're not going to do it. And they dropped it because Israel just refused to cooperate. Um, that shows sometimes the, 
ridiculous way that we handle Israel. So we tr decided to make a fuss about an issue, but then drop it as soon as Israel pushes right. back. Um, but, you know, I mean, I remember going into the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, we raised it, and we raised the issue that still happens, that um, detainees, child detainees included signed confessions in Hebrew, which they don't typically understand. And this this lawyer from the military prosecutor's office said, well, what's wrong with that? They can challenge it later on in the court. And actually, one of the MPs who, who, who was a solicitor said, well, you never advise, I'd never advise a client to sign something and then later contested in court is prejudicial to your case. You can't do that. Um, you know, uh, it's remarkable. Some of the arguments when you dig a little bit just fall apart. You know, uh, <clears throat> yeah, military courts was one of the biggest issues that really came out of all of this. But also, I mean, I should mention Gaza here because, you know, since 2013, uh, MPs haven't been able to get into Gaza. Awesome. And this is relevant for our discussion. So I think the only one who has is a doctor and got in because she's a doctor, Philippa Whitford. She's a, an SNP MP and she went in because she's a, an expert, particularly in breast cancer. So she was helping uh, Palestinian medical services with that. But since the, the coup in Egypt, you hadn't been able to get in via Egypt. We took in a delegation, I think the last time via Erez in 2010. So actually Gaza is in many ways off the map. You can't take people in there. At the moment, international journalists, non-Palestinian journalists can't get in. We're reliant on the Palestinian journalists and guess what? what's happening to them? Exactly. Access to aid agencies is restricted. So this remains a huge challenge. Many of the people debating Gaza, in fact, many of the people grandly commenting about it have never been there. They don't know what it's like, not a clue. And yet they boldly sort of describe it and, uh, and, and dismiss uh, things like context. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I mean, in terms of one of the other kind of influences on things, and it's interesting to talk about, I'm sorry, it's important to talk about this sensitively and be cognizant, for example, of anti-Semitic tropes, secretive, 
Jewish power. These tropes do, they are embedded in our culture. And it's always, you know, after 2000 years yeah. of anti-Semitism, so important to always be aware of them. Um, I, so, I mean, I'll give an equivalent, you know, work I've done on, for example, the Saudi lobby in the UK. So I did a piece about the Saudi lobby and how they wield influence over MPs, including trips where, you know, they're, you know, get these quite lavish trips and all the rest of it. Uh, but there's various other ways that Saudi Arabia operates in order to try and woo MPs um, and shield it from scrutiny of the fact, obviously, it is a egregiously human rights abusing dictatorship with, which has just, just terrible things. And I'm just wondering, in terms of, you know, the equivalent when it comes to Israel, and you, you have various lobby organisations, which obviously are there to try and defend the Israeli state in its current form. And I'm just wondering about the, the impact of them and how they work and how much influence that has over all this. Well, you're right in terms of, I mean, let's get one thing straight. There's nothing illegitimate in, in what they're doing. The question really is whether, you know, it's it, it, it's a sound process, etc. So it's legitimate to be able to take MPs to Israel or, or Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think transparency matters uh, in all of this exactly going forward. In the end, I veered to saying, I want to see MPs travel to the region. I want to see them take an interest. I hope that it can be done in ways that means that they can pursue all forms of arguments. So you raise the human rights issues properly in these countries and don't just sort of raise it as a token subject, which sometimes is the case with ministerial visits. You know, you just mentioned human rights as a side issue. But yeah, for, for sure, you can go through the register of members' interests. There are a lot of delegations organized by Conservative Friends of Israel, Labour Friends of Israel, uh, and, and taken a, a lot of MPs out there. Strangely enough, quite a few of them have gone out there and come back quite shocked at Israeli behavior. Um, I actually worked for a Conservative MP uh, in a cross-party basis, I should stress, because Carby is a cross-party group. And he had gone on a CFI delegation back in 1974 and became a lifelong advocate for Palestinian rights. So it doesn't necessarily always, you know, work out. And, you know, they, they go around. Um, so I'm not necessarily against that, but I think they should make an effort to go, not to see going to Ramallah as sufficient. If they really want to talk about this conflict, then they need to go to the, uh, to, to the West Bank and hear from Palestinians. They need to try to understand everybody's perspective, as we sh all should. It is important. It, it, it is important to listen to the anger uh, in Israel at the moment of those 7th of October attacks, to understand the background as to why they feel, uh, you know, that level of fear and threat. It's definitely there. Um, I, I empathise. Those were grotesque attacks and it comes you know that sense that they have that the region as a whole is against them so many people against them is is very strong and it it colors their perspectives and i think that but the most disappointing thing for me in all of what's happened is yes i can understand the anger the desire for revenge that israel did i can understand palestinians desperate for their freedom and self-determination and their rights to be realized but in all of this, there's no excuse for us. Why are we not being the wise, cool heads in the room as senior members of the international community? Purportedly, we're meant to be supporting international law, the rules-based order, and we're not. 
we should be going to the Israelis, guys, we're your friends. Smashing Gaza up, bombing half its buildings, doing all of this is not going to help your security. You have to live with 7 million Palestinians at the end of this. They're not going anywhere. Even if you are dreaming of expelling some of them in Egypt, you're still going to have millions living inside Israel, next to you, under your control. And you think that perpetrating these horrendous attacks and bombardment, killing a 27,000 people plus, is going to help you in your future? I mean, we should be saying this is really not the way forward. And we're not doing that. We are actually, you know, the first comment that Rishi Sunak ma made was about unequivocal support for Israel, no matter what. And that was just basically a green light. Go ahead, do whatever you want. We are not going to uh, be critical of what you've done in Gaza. And it's true, they have not. We have not heard one syllable criticism from a British government minister as to what they do in Gaza. The best we get is they should adhere to international, Israel must adhere to adhere to international law without any specifics, what, what sort of rules, yeah. you know, uh, etc. And, you know, we even had Andrew Mitchell the other day actually almost speaking like an Israeli spokesperson in the comments and says, Israel, you know, plans to adhere to international law. I mean, like, you're speaking for the Israeli government now. Israel plans. Yet for those of us involved in human rights groups, the idea of Israel adhering to international law is for the birds. They're in violation of Security Council resolutions going back decades. Fourth Geneva Convention. And this all needs to be challenged. Why aren't we being the wise heads, thinking with a conflict resolution mentality? How do we really resolve it? It's only just about now you know, four months into all of this, that it's beginning to start. And we've already seen the impact in the region and the dangers of not having de-escalated earlier, not having got that ceasefire. I mean, one of the other things I wanted to ask is just how strong you think the role of dehumanization has played in all of this, that Palestinians are simply not regarded as human beings by much of those who obviously our ministers, our politicians, the media, because I just don't think for one second the level of the amount of death that we've seen already, with, I'm afraid to say, so much to come, would be tolerable if Palestinian life was seen as anything near as having the same equal worth as a Western life defined. Oh, and, you know, I deal with the other conflicts in, in the region, you know, dealt with the whole Iraq issue and Syria and Yemen and Libya, all these dreadful conflicts. You could add Sudan. I'm not a Sudan expert. But actually, you see the same thing, that these we just get to a situation where they're no longer stories of, in, of individuals humanized, but just become statistics. Huge numbers. You know, you remember Donald Rumsfeld, we don't do body counts. It's the same sort of attitude that we have. Same with Afghanistan. You could add that that in as well. So the number it's just a numbers game in Gaza. I mean, I really wonder if any British minister could name one Palestinian child who's been killed since the 7th of October. One story about them. I very much doubt it. And you see language about them, you know, from Israeli politicians that's dehumanizing. We had the Israeli defense minister talking about human animals, but that's a long term trend. I remember uh, Raphael Aitan referred to Palestinians like drugged cockroaches 
in a bottle. And there's all sorts of often ways in which people have actually likened Palestinians or at a broader level Arabs to animals. It, it, it's extraordinary. Um, we had, you know, the, the article by Tom Friedman in the New York Times the other day also doing this. Um, so there really is a, a lack of humanization or well, the presumption that all Palestinians are Hamas, they all think the same. It, 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 uh, there's an Arab group think as well. It, it, it's I, I'm sad to say that I think there is a lot of anti-Arab racism out there. We don't uh, actually, uh, and we don't talk about it. It is not discussed as an issue. But if you look at it and our reactions to the grotesque, grotesque levels of atrocities committed in the Arab world and the reactions, I'm afraid there is. And the associations of Arab and very negative terms is very widespread in popular culture and Hollywood films. It's been going on for some, some time. And so, yes, people don't think of Palestinians in terms of being, you know, mothers and fathers with aspirations, young kids who want to have the same uh, dreams as, as, as our children, you know, we don't in any way see them as like us at all. But we see often many people will liken Israelis to being like us, they're European. Even that in itself is, is not true. Israel is one of its great strengths of its massive diversity and so forth. And, you know, it's fascinating. I remember being in a Seder in Israel, and I think we counted 14 different nationalities amongst 16 people around the table, all Israeli, but from different countries and had different practices of it. So the idea that all Israelis are sort of European, well, that, that ignores a huge part of Israeli uh, oh. population and culture. Mizrahi. So, yes. Mizrahi people, you know, the huge Jewish population in, in, in Iraq or Syria or Egypt, uh, Morocco, uh, Yemen. And we have to, I think, this is all going back to ignorance. It's all going back to um, really a failure to, to understand the region. We did an opinion poll in 2017. 81% of the British public claimed to know little or nothing about uh, the region. The associations with the word Arab were largely negative. They thought of them as rich. Now, there are some very rich Arabs, largely from the oil-rich states in the Gulf. But actually, at the time, one in four Arabs born in the region, according to UNICEF, were born into poverty. There's grotesque levels of, of poverty in, in, the, in the region. Um, so there isn't absolutely no, no understanding or humanization of their story at all, their narrative, their history is not respected. Palestinians are often deliberately uh, not allowed to tell their own story. Their narrative is uh, trashed. Israel has a narrative, it's allowed to explain it, good, but Palestinians aren't allowed to tell their own history. They're silenced. This is a continual theme and it's going on that, you know, Palestinian human rights defenders are not trusted, uh, that they are deemed to be terrorist sympathizers, all of this. You've seen and heard this for years and we need to challenge that. I'll put a challenge to you. Have you ever heard a British, Palestinian, a British politician talk in terms of the Palestinian aspiration for freedom. It's a basic comment. 
Freedom. Well, Jeremy Corbyn did whatever people think of him. Yeah, maybe um, it's a very rare thing. I certainly haven't heard a minister, you know, and they're living under occupation. You know, that word itself rarely makes a proper entrance into no, the debate, you know, no. at all. Um, they're just not on the canvas, not on the no. of debate. They're just scrubbed away, don't exist. Yep. I mean, just finally, um, yeah. just finally, given your huge, vast years of experience on this, you know, grounded in, 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 in just so much, you know, lived experience, I suppose, there, talking to politicians here and, and so on. Where do you see this heading as things stand? Because it looks bleak in terms of potential outcomes. Do you see hope in that perhaps actually, you know, there is far more awareness now of, even though we talked about the massive dehumanisation of the Palestinian people, um, and even though you said, obviously, there has been coverage, but not, necessarily very helpful or informed coverage, maybe this has forced more people to be aware and, you know, younger generations, I think, have a very different view on this in the US and here. Is there, is, is there hope in terms of what that means or, where I mean, just where do you see it headed? Yes, I mean, there is there are some positive elements, some little slithers of hope out of all of this. I mean, I think at a political level, there is a greater understanding that they can't go back to where it was before. And actually, this is something that Israelis and Palestinians agree upon. You can't go back to the status quo ante. It is unsustainable. For Israelis, that there would be you know, Hamas there as a threat, there would be rockets and all the rest of it, the rockets being uh, utterly wrong. But for Palestinians, and this is the bit that Western politicians don't really get, that under blockade and occupation in Gaza, that was unsustainable for them. And, you know, if I'd met ministers on the 6th of October, and we do, particularly with aid agencies and human rights groups, I would have been saying Gaza is in crisis, acute crisis. It's now in catastrophic crisis. It was not calm. Now, that, none of that is to justify the attacks, but it is by way of explanation as to why uh, the situation is now so bad, because you weren't dealing with a nice, wonderful Gaza where everything was all pretty and lovely before the 7th of October. 80% of the population were dependent on aid. It, it was, you know, grotesque. So I do think we are seeing now politicians trying to grappling with that. And it's interesting that the one single little bit of criticism coming from British politicians has been when Netanyahu rejected ever allowing a Palestinian state. And my take on that, view on that, was it basically uh, Cameron and Sunak are saying, hold it, we have to keep open the, the possibility of a solution to this. We cannot have the one solution that the international community has been agreed upon since around about 1980, a two-state solution, being ruled out, and they pushed back. They didn't push back on what Israel was doing on Gaza, but they did on that. And... It's notable that the only thing that the Americans and maybe we'll see if the Europeans do this have done in terms of any punitive actions is on settlements. So the executive order from President Biden on violent settlers, the decision of the UK to issue visa bans for we don't know whom yet, but for violent settlers is indicative they actually want to emphasize to Israel, look, the settlements can't go on like this you can't continue to expand them, settler violence, kicking Palestinians out. So I do think they want, they do want to keep open the options or a permanent solution so we don't go back to this two to three years time. 
I fear, though, what we've seen in previous conflicts is that motivation might be there now. But will it be there three months after the guns full sign? Will it will it last? David Cameron will only be in office probably until the election. Um, you know, does the whole ambition for that go? Some other crisis come along and we all forget about it. But it would be very dangerous if we just went back to where we were because it's not a solution. It's just simply a, a pause waiting for the next round. I think public opinion has been affected by it. I think that there'll be more attention on it. I think Israel has done huge damage to itself. It's now in the dock at the ICJ for on plausible grounds of genocide. And, you know, accountability is just making a late entrance into this conflict. Yeah. Small yeah. baby steps, maybe, but it, it, it's coming in. Um, you know, you've seen Spain and Belgium saying, well, we're going to stop uh, weapon sales more countries should be doing that why should we be supplying weapons in a situation where a genocide may be committed so i think that is there but i, th I still think unfortunately the alarming negative consequences of all this are, are huge and you know unlike in the previous conflicts you know 2014 which was the worst on on gaza if we got a ceasefire tomorrow and if that ceasefire was all perfect I'm not sure how you bring back some sort of life to Gaza. The unexploded ordinance there, most of the homes are gone. Um, you know, the trauma of Palestinians there is just off the charts. It's going to take ages. Will there be the funding? Will there, I mean, people talk about the day after, but we should also be thinking of five years after. What's the long-term blueprint for this it's going to be a really tough journey even in the best case scenario and i'm not sure there's going to be the sort of determination to to see that through to actually open up gaza so eventually we can paint an horizon for palestinians to say yes actually life in gaza can become normal and free you can have a port an airport you can trade and travel you can live normal lives are we going to get to that stage? Are we actually going to be able to, to deliver that? Or will they be permanently in that open-air prison camp that David Cameron mentioned, that he seems now conveniently to not be mentioning? Um, 2010. Yeah. <laughs> 2010. And he was right then, and it, it's now the prison camp has been invaded and bombed to smithereens, so even the cells are no longer standing. Are we going to do it? Are we going to push for a real solution to all of this? I fear that the, you know, uh, the chances are not. And, you know, the United States is obviously very important. And, you know, we have to look to what will happen in November. Um, Biden hasn't covered himself in glory. And Donald Trump is certainly not somebody anybody's going to invest much hope of, no. you know, pushing a long term solution to this. Sobering stuff, Chris, as I find all these conversations tend to be quite sobering, often like having a bucket of ice water thrown over your head, but very eloquently done and full of, you know, so much insight and, and experience. I think people can see why I was so keen to, to speak to you about this. And I think, you know, in my own case, I'm sure people watching and listening in terms of their understanding about where things stand with their own politicians. Um, and I just think that importance too of just making it clear that 
you know, it is so important that long after this hideous episode, it's so important that people's attention doesn't waver um, because that's the danger. People yeah. feel, you know, passionate now, but then, you know, other things come along, things fade, uh, but the plight of the Palestinian people will remain hideous. So it's so important we talk about this. So really appreciate um, your voice, Chris. So everyone watching or listening, do obviously as ever, share this video, get the Chris's fascinating insights out. Uh, press like, subscribe. But Chris, thank you so much. It was an honor. And thank you. Thank you for having me and keep up the great work and the way you've done it, etc. Uh, highlighting this issue is in, invaluable. And uh, I hope others will, you know, join you in, in that. And to to push back, I'm, I'm sorry that you've had so much, you know, grief and unpleasantness as well, you know, which uh, <laughs> really is not deserved and it doesn't help the debate on well, yeah, comes comes with the territory, but I'd, I'd never forgive myself, and I hope other people don't feel deterred and do speak out. It's very important that we do. Uh, yeah, so cheers, Chris. I appreciate that, and thanks so much.